Good morning. Everybody doing all right? So uh, is it just me or is that new song incredible? That I breathe to worship you? Yeah, that, praise God. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. Um, the last, yeah, yeah, cheer for the worship team, yeah. Uh, the last few chapters in Genesis, we have been sort of watching this back and forth trek happening, right? Joseph's brothers get hungry, they have to come to Egypt, they get to Egypt, they see Joseph, don't recognize him, he recognizes them, and so he starts messing with them. And he makes them go back. And there's a back and forth thing that's been going on for the last three or four chapters, right? And he keeps setting them up. Then he got uh, a cup in Benjamin's bag and Simeon's being held and all of this stuff is happening. And now we're coming to this point where he's got his brothers in front of him and finally the moment of truth is about to happen. That's where we're going to find ourselves today. Uh, and we're going to open in Genesis chapter 45. So if you've got your Bible or your device or whatever, find Genesis 45. Uh, and let me just tell you this, though, so you're ready. Put your seatbelts on. Because uh, today, you are going to be able to be among the few who will be able to say, I was there on a Sunday morning when Pastor Doug covered three chapters in one message. All right? So... Put your seatbelts on. The only way I know how to do this is for us to kind of fly over in a helicopter, look at Genesis 45, 46, and 47 from above, try to get a sense of the giant landmarks, and go, hey, where are there some lessons here that could be life-changing for us? And I think that's what God wants to give us this morning. So that's where we're going, Genesis 45, 46, and 47. By now you have time to have gotten there, so let's begin reading in Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out for me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you've sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I think in verse 3, when Joseph announces who he is, it has to be the greatest understatement I've ever seen in anywhere in literature. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed. You think? <laughs> you think? Maybe a little bit? 
These guys had tried to kill him and then decided it would be more profitable to make him a slave, so they sold him into slavery in a foreign land. This was 22 years ago. Since then, he has served as a slave. He has been a prisoner, and now he has been promoted and exalted to prime minister of Egypt. And they're, they're kneeling before him, just like his dream said they would. And he announces to them, I am Joseph. And they don't get it. They look at him like, uh, what are you talking about? And he goes, no, come closer. <laughs> come closer. They come closer. And he gets real close to him. And he goes, I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold. Now, if I was doing the movie, the musical score would be like, dun, 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 dun. And it'd be like, oh my goodness. This is the moment, right? Is this the moment they all just take off for the doors and start running? What's going to happen? And he immediately sees the look on their face. They are, they're just stunned, shocked, horrified. Imagine yourself in their situation. And he immediately alleviates their difficulty by saying, don't worry. You think you sent me here, but actually God sent me here. And he sent me here for you. He sent me here so I would be here to preserve life for you. Because God made a promise to our great-grandfather and our grandfather and our father. And we're that promise. And God has been doing something all along. God sent me here ahead for a purpose. You talk about perspective. That Joseph gained this perspective over the course of the last 22 years. God is good and God is in charge. And Joseph knew it by now. God had allowed all these ups and downs in Joseph's life for good. For a good purpose. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 says? And God causes all things to work together for good, Right? Now, it doesn't say all things are good. It says he takes all the things, the good, the bad, and the indifferent, and he brings it all together, and he works it together for good. And if you're wondering what the good is, the next verse, verse 29 of Romans 8, says that the good is that you would be conformed into the image of his son. So what is God doing in our lives? There's this big, gigantic plan where he is working things together, and there are some spots in my life that need some sanding, right? Some spots in my life that need some polishing. There are some spots in my life that just need some chipping away, and God allows all of that and uses it for the good of me becoming more like Jesus. See, God had a plan in Joseph's life all along. And it's easy for us to remember that because we read this in a few chapters. Some of us were first introduced to this as little kids in a VBS or Sunday school room where they told us this big sweeping story in about 10 minutes. And we know that it looks really rough and it's some really hard times, but it all comes out great. He went through this for 22 years. And in those 22 years, God taught him some things. And that sort of leads us to our first big lesson. Like I said, we're going to fly over. We're going to see some big lessons. So if you're a note taker, write down the big lessons. And, and if you're not, I wrote them down for you. Take a picture of the screen with your phone. Okay? Here's big lesson number one. 
God is doing some big stuff that you don't understand. I promise you he is. God is doing some big stuff that he did not ask you about. God is doing some big stuff that he did not consult with you on. God has had a plan long before you were ever born. And that plan is going to be carried out long after people have forgotten your name. God is doing some big stuff that you don't know anything about. And, and we know that, but we have to be reminded because human nature is that we think that our lives are about us. Don't we? Right? I mean, it's just human nature. I don't know if we can do it any differently unless we force ourselves. Because all we can do is see from our own eyeballs, right? We, we only notice what's around us. We only pay close attention to the things that involve us. That's just sort of the nature of being finite and being human. And so in our human nature, we think our lives are about us. But there is a bigger picture. And I'm not telling you that you have to see the bigger picture, I'm telling you, you probably won't see the bigger picture. You have to believe that there's a bigger picture anyway. God is doing something even when you can't see it, whether or not you understand it. God is doing some great things that are beyond our grasp. And how do we know that? Because we know him. This is why I'm always hammering this home. The book of Genesis is about God and who he is who we can expect him to be, how we can expect him to behave. God is good. God is powerful. God is holy. God is gracious. God is just. God is loving. And God is at work. So if we know who God is, then even when we can't understand what's going on, we can know that something is going on that is greater than we can understand. And until we get that perspective, we're in trouble because your life is not your story. Your life is a small picture in God's story. And the universe is about Him. So whether we understand it or not, God is a good God. And He's at work in our life for a purpose. That's big lesson number one, but let's keep going. So Joseph tells his brothers, hey, look, Go home, get dad, get the family, bring everybody back. You guys are going to live in Egypt, right? That's what we get in the next several verses. We're going to pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 45. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat of the fat of the land. Now you're ordered, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave a change of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So he sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Now that brings us 
to big lesson number two. God can take care of you better than you can take care of yourself. God can take care of you better than you can take care of yourself. Look back at verse 20. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. I want you to go back to Canaan, and I just want you to bring the people. You don't have to bring any of your stuff. Leave it there, because when you get back to Egypt, I'm going to give you the best that Egypt has to offer. You are going to be rich. You are going to be loaded. Life is going to be great. Don't worry about all the stuff that you've left behind, that you've been living in tents and you've been building your own furniture and all that kind of stuff. Leave that junk behind because there's something better for you ahead. Now, I was trying to picture this, and it reminded me, when I was a kid, there was this show, well, it was probably like 20 years before I was a kid. There was this show called the Beverly Hillbillies. You remember this show, right? Come and listen to a story about a man named... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know it, right? Okay, so he's a hillbilly, right? He lives in a shack, him and his people. And, and this is life. They go out with their gun and they hunt lunch, right? But then... They, they strike it rich when they discover oil in the land, right? And now they're millionaires and they move to Beverly Hills. Hillbillies in Beverly Hills. It's a brilliant idea, right? <laughs> and, and, and the interesting thing that as soon as I thought of this, I thought of this picture, their, their truck all loaded up, right? When they came to Beverly Hills, you see on the back, you know what that is? A wash tub, right? He doesn't realize they're going to be bathing in a granite jacuzzi, right? For the rest of their lives. But he brought his wash tub. He brought an old bed spring, right? Just in case. And yet they thought what they had was, was good because it's all they knew. They didn't realize the wealth and the opulence that was awaiting them. And so so Pharaoh says, listen, I know, I know your tents are nice, but they're tents, right? I, I realize you built some furniture, you had a hammer and a nails, and you, you, you made a table, right? But the greatest artisans of Egypt have handcrafted furniture for your new place. See, I, I'm going to give you stuff the likes of which you never could have imagined, and I'm going to just tell you this. It probably won't happen the way that you would expect. It probably isn't going to happen in the timing that you would prefer. But God is a rewarder of those who seek him. We can walk away from our old life and into life with God knowing that whatever we've left behind is going to pale in comparison to everything that he has ahead of us. Now, I just want to spend a minute on this lesson. So put a, put a marker in Genesis uh, 45 there and turn to the New Testament of the book of Matthew. And we're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount, with this, which is uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I want you to go to Matthew chapter 6 and listen to what Jesus has to say about this. And, and I wish I had time to just preach this whole section, but I, we're just going to pick it up in the middle you can read it on your own at home this week. It's a beauty about having a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, let us know. We will send you home with one for free today. Everybody needs a Bible. Genesis uh, chapter 6, I'm Genesis, Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. 
But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow will be thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, it's not that material things are bad in and of themselves. God says, I know that you need a house. I know that you need lunch. I know that you need clothing. I know that you need sustenance. I know all the things that you need way better than you know. You think I'm gonna let you go without the things you need? I'm your father. But if you will make it your business to seek me and my kingdom first, I will make sure everything else is added to you. See, when you just seek what this world has to offer, you might get some of what this world has to offer and that's it. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, you will receive the kingdom of God and his righteousness and some of what this world has to offer. See, God is saying to us, I know it's so easy to hold on to the things that you think you need. And some of it's material, and some of it's not material. Some of it is relationships, or habits, or belief systems, or ways of doing things that are part of our old life, and we're comfortable with them. And so as we say, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to walk into this new life, that's why I love that Jesus didn't say, you need to be recuperated. He said, you need to be born again. There's nothing in your life that is, is, is appropriate for the life that God wants to give you. You need a new life. You need to be born again. And when you are born again into this new life, you can't cling to the things that you used to cling to. The things that used to give you identity can no longer give you identity. The things that used to give you peace and satisfaction can no longer be your source of peace and satisfaction. You're gonna have to be willing to leave some of that stuff behind so that you can cling to Christ. And if you don't, you're never gonna experience him to the fullest. I wish I had time to say more about that, but I don't. Let's get back to Genesis. And in Genesis um, uh, chapter 45, I want you to notice this last thing. This is, is, I wouldn't say this is a big lesson, but I just couldn't pass it up. Verse 24, so he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. I suppose he said this because their mother wasn't there, right? This is what my mother would say to my brother and me anytime we were going somewhere with somebody else. Please, just don't fight, right? Can you guys just put it away for a few hours? Don't quarrel on the journey. And it's just like, it was like I heard my mother's voice in my ear when I read this. And I thought, how funny, first of all, that Joseph said this to them. That's the last thing. Okay, goodbye. Now, don't quarrel while you're on the journey, right? And how interesting that God thought it should be written down and preserved for us in Scripture. Seems like such an innocuous thing. What, who cares, right? And I started thinking about this. See, they would have naturally been assigning blame to one another for what they were going through. Imagine the situation they're in. They have just been hit in the face with a wrecking ball, right? Life as they know it is completely changed all of a sudden, 
and the cat is out of the bag. They have had a secret that they have shared and kept for 22 years. They conspired. They sold their brother into slavery and lied to their father and said that he was killed. Now Joseph is saying, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you're going to have a great life here in Egypt and I've forgiven you. The bad news is you got to go home and tell dad what you did. <laughs> right? Can you imagine the, just as they're, they got a long walk. Like, I told you not to do that. You did not tell me. It was your idea. No, I said, and back and forth, back and forth. Well, all I know is when we get to dad, I'm telling him you did it, right? You could just see this. I could totally see them doing this. Because when we get our eyes focused on God and his goodness, all that other petty stuff, it just becomes meaningless. It's just not important. When we get our eyes focused on God and his goodness instead of on ourselves and our petty little interests, it is amazing how much less we have to argue about. And guys, I just want to say this because we live in a time and a place where outside the walls of churches on Sunday mornings, people who don't attend church, people who do not consider themselves Christians in our society, and there's way more of them than there are of us now, their general view is that we love to argue but you know what? When you get your eyes on the prize, when you get, put your trust in him and your life becomes about him and not about you, then all of a sudden being right is not nearly so important. All of a sudden being recognized is not nearly so important. So Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan to get the family and hurry back to Egypt. Let's pick it up now in uh, verse 25. They went from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. Oy vey, this is not going to be good. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he's ruler over all the land. Notice they left out the part about how we faked his death, <laughs> right? Hey, it turns out he didn't get eaten. Who knew, right? He's, <laughs> he's ruler over all the land of Egypt, but he was, <laughs> listen to this, this is great. So, but Jacob was stunned. Yeah, you think? For he did not believe them. What the heck are you talking about, right? How, first of all, he's not alive. I was at his funeral. Secondly, if he was alive, he wouldn't be the ruler of Egypt. What are you talking about? This is an old dude. This is a lot to take, right? Verse 27, when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons, I think this was the key, when they saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father was revived. Then Israel said, it is enough, for my son Joseph is still alive. I will go to see him before I die. So things are looking up. God has been taking care of them all along, and he's promising to take care of them moving forward. If we learn anything from the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I think the easiest lesson is this. It is hard to walk by faith in the promises of God, isn't it? It's just hard. It's, it's not hard to say you believe. It's hard to live like you believe. It's hard to let go of the idea that we have to take care of ourselves, for example, and let God take care of us. 
Look at Genesis 46.1. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, I am, the God, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. This is getting repetitive, right? It's, it's been a few chapters since God has met with one of these guys and reminded him. You know what I told Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation. You know what I told Isaac? I'm going to make you a great nation. Had to tell him each 10 times because I kept forgetting. And now I'm telling Jacob for the 50th time, I'm going to make you a great nation. Don't be afraid. See, when we walk in the promises of God, we don't have to be afraid. Is this on? I'm going to try this side. When we walk in the promises of God, we don't have to be afraid. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> guys, do, do you understand what this means? Like God has promised us. What has he promised us? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will send my spirit to be with you and he will comfort you and he will never leave you and he will guide you and he will teach you. God, see, we don't have to live in fear. The what-ifs don't have power over people who are walking with Jesus. And so we find that, that here's um, uh, Jacob, and God is meeting with him again and saying, hey, don't forget, I'm going to make you a great nation. That's why I'm sending you to Egypt. Verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob to their, and their little ones and their wives in the wagons, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Okay, I got to say this. What was he just told? What were the brothers just told? Don't bring your stuff. You don't have to bring anything. And yet, what does it say? In verse 8, they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan. This is Jed Clampett and his family. <laughs> they load up the wagon. They're like, I got to make sure. What if the stuff that God's calling me to is not as good as the stuff I'm leaving behind? And they take their stuff. It's hard to drop everything and follow God. We always want to hang on to that stuff from our old lives. But here's the thing, and this is a big lesson to write down. It is impossible to stay where you are and follow God at the same time. You can't live in the past and still walk with God. It's impossible. You're either a follower of God, which means you are constantly walking. I love how the Apostle Paul constantly uses this phrase to describe life with God. He calls it a walk. We are walking. We are journeying. And isn't that what we've seen in Genesis? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they don't settle down for long, do they? They walk. And where do they walk to? The place God is calling them. God says, come with me, and they come with him. Wasn't that the calling on Abraham's life? Come with me to the place that I will show you 
right? And it becomes all about that journey. Guys, some of us are stuck in our past and we're saying, Pastor, you can't tell me that I have to leave my past. After all, you don't know what happened to me in my past. You're right, I don't know what happened to you in your past. My question is, do you wanna keep living there or do you wanna live in the glories of God? But we, we actually have a choice. And, and I'm not saying it's easy, it might take some counseling, it might take some prayer, it might take some hard work, it might take some forgiveness, it might take some removal of bitterness. I don't know what it's going to take in your life or mine, but I'm telling you, we don't have to live with the little scraps that we've been able to put together for ourselves. God has something better for us, but we're going to have to trust him. You can't stay where you are and follow God at the same time. Jacob couldn't even imagine the life that was waiting for him. It was hard to believe that God could provide for him more than he had provided for himself. He was a rich guy by Canaan standards. He held on to junk that would pale in comparison once he got to Egypt. And we do the same things. But you can't stay where you are and follow God. Now, verses 8 through 27... Uh, is a list of the names of the sons and grandsons of Jacob as they left Canaan. It's a, it's a list. It's verses 8 through 27. You can see it there in your Bible. Who wants to volunteer to come up and read those names to us? <laughs> Nobody? Okay. Well, then guess what? We're going to skip that. Um, and we're not skipping it because it's not important. Actually, the lists of names in Scripture are always important. Okay? They always bring light to what we're reading and understanding. A lot of times they bring light to other passages in Scripture. So I'm not saying blow this off, this is unimportant. I'm saying I was assigned three chapters in one sermon. So we have to go fast. So we're not going to read all of those names. What we are going to do is pick it up in chapter uh, 46, verse 28. Now he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Now, Goshen is the, is the pasture land of Egypt, far from the city. They came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. I bet he did. A long time. Then Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of the livestock and they have um, brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, that you may live in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Interesting. I, I just want to remind you, in their wildest dreams, none of them ever could have seen it turning out this way. Like, Joseph could never have imagined this. As a child growing up, he didn't understand those dreams. And, and when he was a slave and when he was in the prison, he would have never in his wildest dreams imagined that he would be in charge of all of Egypt and that God had sent him there and allowed him to go through all his stuff so that he could save his family so God could keep his promise. His brothers walked around in guilt and shame for 22 years keeping their secret. 
Jacob had given up any hope of ever seeing Joseph again. He was dead. Why would I ever see him? Even Pharaoh had no idea what was going on behind the scenes, how God was doing this great thing. Here's the lesson. God is really good at his job, and he doesn't need our help. He's really good at it, you guys. He, he knows how to work things together for good. He knows how to put a plan together and bring it about. He's really good at his job. You can't ever really tell all that God is doing until he's done. By, by now, it's popular, probably you've seen it somewhere, where they'll, they'll bring up a, an artist with a big canvas like this, and he's just putting paint and throwing this mess of paint on the canvas, and you're watching this, and he's doing it real fast, and the paint's just getting all over, and, and then all of a sudden, he takes it and turns it upside down, and you go, <gasps> and you see what it is. If you haven't seen it, Google it. It's amazing. And that's exactly how it is trying to watch God work. I know there's paint going on a canvas. I can see the mess. But I didn't realize it's a work of art. Something beautiful. But you can't see it while it's happening. Life is full of ups and downs. There are unbelievable sorrows. Imagine when Jacob lost Joseph, what that must have been like. And there's unbelievable joys. When they were reunited, it says they just hugged for a long time and wept. I bet they didn't let go of each other for at least an hour. So there's ups and downs in life, but God is the one constant. I think the Apostle Paul is a great illustration of this, so we're going to jump to the New Testament again real quick. So mark your spot and go to the New Testament, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's about halfway through your New Testament. And go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is writing to the Corinthians about a lot of the difficulties he's been going through. And speaking about himself and his companions, here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us a way of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And it's an interesting turn of phrase. He, he, he talks about um, uh, momentary light afflictions. I have these momentary, these little issues, these little problems. Momentary light afflictions. Um, like, I don't know, allergies or um, coming up short on payday momentary light afflictions, how those things are working for him uh, a glory that is eternal. And, and he started thinking, well, what, are, what are these momentary light afflictions in Paul's life? Well, turn to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians and he will explain it himself. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning about halfway through verse 23. Here's what Paul says about his life serving the Lord. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now let me explain. 39 lashes. They had a thing called a cat of nine tails. It was, a, it was a, like a, a handle of a baseball bat and attached to the end of it were strips of leather. And on all those strips of leather that were woven into the ends, bits of bone and, uh, and rock. 
and they would whip them with it. This is what Jesus was beaten with before his crucifixion. And that the bone and the rock would dig into your flesh and pull your flesh out and destroy your muscles. It was devastating. And he received 39 lashes, he said. Why 39? Because it was determined by the Romans that 40 lashes would kill a man. So you give him 39 so that he would be injured as badly as possible without dying so he could suffer longer. Okay? Five times he received 39 lashes. Okay? Now, let's continue. Verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods, baseball bats. Once I was stoned. That means they threw rocks in them. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Once I was stoned. <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Let's just stop there. This really is a matter of perspective, isn't it? He calls that momentary light afflictions. Now, is he just crazy? Is this just hyperbole? Is he just showing off? No. He had the perspective that we all need to have. In, view of, in light of the view of eternity, what can mere man do to me? When I recognize that I am living in an eternal promise of the blessings of God, then, then when I suffer, maybe I suffer for my faith. Or maybe I suffer in spite of my faith. Maybe I suffer because of other people's sin. Maybe I suffer because of my own sin. However much I suffer, what he's saying is, if you get your perspective right, that suffering does not have the power to control you. It's momentary. It's light when compared to the eternal blessings of walking in the promises of God. I wish we had more time to talk about that, but I'll say this. I don't know what's happening in this chapter of your life right now. Some of you I do. Some of you I know you're suffering. Some of you are in dark seasons. Some of you are just trying to keep your head above water right now. And, and if you're not, I bet you have been. And if you haven't been and you're not, sorry to tell you, you will be. Because that's life on this earth. Here's what I know. Your God is greater than your circumstances. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ask or even think. So get back to Genesis 46. And let's see if we can land this thing. Genesis 46 and verse 30. When I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. Sorry. 46, 30. Then Israel said to Joseph, let me die since I have seen your face. You are still alive. See, that's not a, that's not I want to die. That's like, I can finally die in peace. I, now that I've seen your face, I'm satisfied. Now that I've seen your face, I want for nothing more. This is my dream come true. Now I can die and be happy. 
What's astonishing to me about that statement is that four chapters ago in chapter 42, he said basically when, when they came back to him and reported, hey, we've got to take Benjamin back, he said, look, everything is against me. Already lost Joseph. Now you're telling me I lost Simeon and you're going to take Benjamin? It's not going to happen. You know what? I don't even want to live anymore. There's no reason for me to go on. Just let me die. That's what he said in chapter 42. Now in chapter 46, he says it in the complete opposite way. I'm now so content. I'm now so satisfied that I could die now and I'd be happy. He was suicidal in 42. In 46, he's overwhelmed with joy. How does that happen? Well, four chapters ago, his situation seemed impossible. Joseph was dead. He had been to the funeral. Nothing he could do about that. Simeon's in jail in a faraway land. Nothing he could do about that. And now they're taking Benjamin away from him too. Nothing he could do about that. I am helpless. I am hopeless. I see no reason to keep going on. I am suffering. I am struggling. I can't take this anymore. That's where he was in chapter 42. And I point this out because people are there all the time. Good people choose to take their own lives because they reach a place where they can't see a way out. They can't imagine things could ever get better. This is it. This is terrible. I can't stand it. I don't want to deal with it anymore. I can't take another minute of this, and so I'll take my own life. Guys, listen. God was working in the background while Jacob was going through hell. And he's working in the background when you're going through hell too. He is working. There is hope. There is reason to go on. He is not finished with you yet. Because your God is bigger than your circumstances. And your life, no matter how hard things may be at the moment, is an incredible gift from an incredible God who has an incredible plan. And the best is yet to come. So don't lose heart. Genesis 46, 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for they have been keepers of livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from your youth even until now, both we and our fathers that uh, you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, my father, my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan and behold, they're in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, but there's no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. 
You see what God is doing here? First of all, Joseph tells them exactly what to do. He, <laughs> this is a hysterical scene. He gathers his brother, the Beverly Hillbillies. He gets these guys together and he's like, okay, you guys, come with me. I'm going to introduce you to Pharaoh. You know what? Actually, you and you and you stay here. <laughs> oh, and you in the, in the Bud Light shirt with the sleeves cut off, you stay here too. And, and he takes five of them, right? And he gets them to Pharaoh and he goes, now listen, I am going to tell you exactly what to say and you're going to say what I tell you. Here's what you say. We are shepherds. We've always been shepherds. We only know how to be shepherds. That's what we are. Because he's going to ask you what you do for a living. And sure enough, these brought, they're brought before Pharaoh. What do you do for a living? And they, they pass the test. We are shepherds. Good. Why did uh, Joseph set it up this way? Because shepherds are detested by the Egyptians. What that means is they can't move into the cities and live among the Egyptians. They have to live out in the pasture lands where there are no cities, where they will not intermix with the Egyptians, where they will not take on the Egyptian religion, where they will not marry into the Egyptian families, where they won't just be melted into Egypt so they can become their own nation. Now, that list of names, there was uh, 70, 70 names listed there. Those were the men who were Jacob and his direct descendants. That did not include any of the women, any of the children, or any of the servants, right? So let's just say when they left Canaan, there was about two to 300 of them in their clan. 400 years later, when Moses leads them out of Egypt, they will be about two to three million. God makes them a great nation, while they're in Egypt. See, if you're a Jew, you've been taught your whole life to look at Egypt as the worst thing that ever happened. It's the hand of God. While they were in Egypt, he made them a great nation. And then, having become a great nation, he moved them into their promised land. See, God has a great plan, and he's working it out. He is at work in the background the whole time. Yes, their circumstances in Egypt became very difficult. Yes, they were enslaved. In fact, um, looking back as Moses writes this, he looks back and he calls this the land of Ramesses. Ramesses wasn't even born then. There was no land of Ramesses. Why did he say that? Because it became the land of Ramesses. That's when they built the towers there. What was Goshen became the land of Ramesses where the slaves worked. They knew the land of Ramesses. But God used that difficulty in order to get them where they were going. He protected them through it all. He kept them together. Now look at verse 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during their days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land, the land of Ramesses, of Pharaoh, uh, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers with all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Did you catch that? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Jacob is Jed Clampett. <laughs> Jacob is nobody from no place. 
Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And so, and so Joseph makes the introduction. Uh, Pharaoh, I want you to meet my dad. This is Jacob. Jacob, meet Pharaoh. And, and Jacob looks into the eyes of the most powerful man on earth. He sees what it is when you're ultimately successful. He sees what it is when you're ultimately powerful. He sees what it is when you're ultimately wealthy. And standing in the presence of the most powerful man on earth, all he can think of is this. Can I pray for you? It looks like these years of famine have been tough on you. Can I bless you? Isn't this amazing? <laughs> Pharaoh looks at him. This cracks me up. He looks at him, and as soon as he's introduced, the one thing Pharaoh says is, how old are you? <laughs> like, isn't that funny? He's, he's 130, which at that time is not that old, right? But he basically, and his response is, I'm 130, but it's a rough 130. He goes, I'm 130 going on 195. That's basically what he says, right? And, and, and he goes on and says, you know what? My life has been tough. I, I was fighting with my brother in the womb. My, my parents... They didn't love us well. They, they separated us and turned us against one another. I fought with my brother my whole life. In fact, I stole his birthright when my dad was blind. And that's why I had to leave. And I had to leave town and go away. And I was gone for decades. I finally, in my middle age, met a woman that I fell in love with. And I decided to marry her. And her father gave me her ugly sister. And I had to live with that. And I had to stay an extra seven years just to get the wife that I wanted. And then there was problems conceiving and the women were fighting. You know what it's like to be married to four women? All these kids. I have had a tough time of it. Can I pray for you? Why pray for Pharaoh? Because Jacob understood that even Pharaoh doesn't get to take his next breath unless God graciously gives it to him. And because God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wasn't just to bless them, it was, I will bless you and make you a blessing. And now Jacob has become a blessing. And as we close it, you can read the next several verses. It talks about Joseph's business prowess, how he makes even more money for Pharaoh. But I want you to pick it up in verse 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so that the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, please, if I've found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh, which is a, a way to make a, a promise, and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you'll carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. What a fitting way to wrap up Jacob's story. There he is, Jacob, the old man, 147. Jacob, after a very, very tumultuous life, 
Jacob, after running from God for so long before he finally decided that he was willing to trust God, that same Jacob at the end of his life is bowed in worship and that's the picture we get of him. He's worshiping the God of the promise because he believes God and he trusts him to keep his promises. His trials did not define him in the end. His failures did not define him in the end. In the end, he was defined by his relationship with the God of the promise. And so let's just close with this. In the end, how will your life be defined? The God of the promise, he still calls you to leave behind what belongs in the past and walk with him into a future that he has been working out since long before you were ever born. And my prayer for you is that when that day comes for you, you'll stand before your Lord and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your trustworthiness, God. We admit that we live in these little bubbles where we think we see stuff, but we don't understand. We thank you that even though we don't understand, we know the one who does understand. We give you all the thanks. We give you all the praise. We give you all the glory. Help us, Father, to walk in the promise, to trust in you, and to move forward from here. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Um, a few things before we head out. I just want to make you aware of a few things in case you did not read your bulletin, but I know you all did. I'm going to go over it anyways. Um, VBS is coming up quick, and so if you didn't already see Between Services, we have a donation board on the back patio, and uh, I'm assuming it's still out there. If you go back there and it's not, then I'm sorry. Um, but what that is, is it's a board with a bunch of things on it that we need. For it's not there. Students. It's not out there. You'll have to see it next week. It's not out there. Yep. So next week, you can go and see it. Um, but next week, come and if you can come a little early, go to the patio, pull something off that board, you can come and donate that we need for VBS. Uh, and then this Saturday is the VBS work day. What this is, is from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., unless you finish earlier. We're going to be building sets and, and different stuff for our BBS week. Um, we won't actually be setting it up that day, but we'll be getting everything ready to set up. And uh, we're going to be here from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. If you can only do an hour within that time, just come and show up, come and help. And if we finish earlier, then that'll be a good thing. It's not just building stuff. It's cutting, coloring, decorating, designing. There's stuff for everybody to do, but it's just... For teenagers and up, if, the, if your kids are young enough to come to VBS, they can't be here on the workday because it spoils the fun for them, okay? So just come for any part of that you come, you can. We will put you to work, and you can contribute to VBS that way. Yes, and then uh, we have our youth beach trip this Thursday, which we're excited about. If any youth are here and they plan on going, there are permission slips available. See Garrett uh, after the service. He'll get you set up with that. And finally... We're going to a Dodger game on Friday night, and so if you've already purchased tickets for that, then uh, they are available today right after the service.